calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter 35. Positive Thoughts. Tim Feely walked down the white corridor, tallying off his hair as he went. Amazing what a shower could do for the soul. His flip-flops flapped against the floor. He wore a thick white terry cloth robe, a gift from Captain Yasaka. That poor, poor woman. She commanded an entire ship's worth of sailors, day in, day out. But sometimes a girl just needed someone else to take charge. Tim wondered if Margaret Montoya was that kind of woman in the bedroom. Or did her boudoir policy stray into the dictatorial realm? He certainly couldn't see Clarence Otto as the kind of guy who let his lady boss him around. Maybe that was the problem. Maybe Margaret was too aggressive for tall, dark, and don't threaten my manhood. If Margot wanted to call the shots, that wouldn't bother Tim in the least. If the ladies liked it, Tim liked it. A simple philosophy that opened up a world of possibilities. Could he land Margaret? Why the fuck not? He felt on top of the world. He felt like a king. He'd isolated the Hydra's catalyst-producing gene sequence and inserted it into his fast-growing yeast, which was now happily dividing away. It remained to be seen, however, if the modified yeast actually produced the catalyst, and if that catalyst actually worked. From everything he'd seen so far, it would. Which meant, Tim Feely might very well have just saved the world. And if that don't get you laid, nothing will. Tim entered the briefing room. Margaret was sitting in one of the room's ten theater-style chairs. Clarence stood off a bit to the side. He'd lost the suit coat, thank God. He wore jeans and a black T-shirt. A T-shirt that was too tight, in Tim's opinion. Well, maybe Margaret was tired of all those muscles. Fuck, but that Clarence dude was put together, though. Margaret saw Tim enter, raised her glass of wine. Dr. Feely, I found the liquor cabinet and helped myself. You don't mind? He gave her his best seductive smile. Don't mind at all. Clarence saw the smile. He scowled. Tim dialed the smile back a few notches, from leering to slightly more than friendly. Margaret gestured to the room, clearly hoping to change the subject. This theater is really something. 
Tim could imagine how the room took newbies by surprise. In addition to cushy seats that faced a ten-foot screen, there was a fridge full of beer, plenty of snacks, and a liquor cabinet packed with the best liquid treats a boy could buy. Don't forget there was a full staff here for years, he said. Uncle Sam wanted his pet scientists to be happy. Clarence let out a snort. <laughs> yeah. And the people who actually do the work of running the ship? What do they think of your little private theater? Tim waggled his pointer finger side to side. Please to no, 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 he said. The entire science module is off limits to the rank and file. I doubt people who hot bunk would appreciate we brainiacs living in the lap of luxury. Right. That doesn't bother you at all. Tim walked past Clarence to the liquor cabinet. The half-empty bottle of Adderall was right on top. Correction, half full. Tim was an optimist, after all. He opened the cabinet and pulled out the bottle of Oban 2000. Clarence, Tim said as he poured a glass, it's not my fault other people didn't get a doctorate. No, I suppose it's not. Just like it's not your fault that you get to live in freedom. This guy had to have an American flag tattooed somewhere on his body. Margaret waved a hand. Boys, don't rain on my parade with your political differences, okay? If Tim's yeast culture takes off, we may very well have this thing beat. I'm in the mood to enjoy my break, because soon we have to get back to work. Tim nodded. I agree. Tomorrow's going to be a big day. Margaret shook her head. I'm talking about tonight, Dr. Feely. As soon as we watch the diver enter the Los Angeles, we'll get back at it. Tim had a moment to hope she was joking. The look in her eyes said she wasn't. Ah, I see. Good thing he had enough stimulants to go around. Better living through chemistry. He sat in the chair next to Margaret, feeling Clarence's stare on the back of his neck as he did. Tim sipped his Oban. The image on the big screen showed a cone of dimly lit water, featureless, save for an occasional bit of flotsam that glowed like a tiny star in the diver's light, then gone as the camera passed it by. Numbers played out at the bottom of the screen, showing the descending depth, 800 feet and counting. Another hundred feet or so, and that light would play off the wreck of the Los Angeles. Up until the shit hit the fan, Tim had spent most of his time in this very room, watching downloaded movies and TV shows, playing video games, just generally dicking around and wasting taxpayer money. What else had there been to do? Sure, he'd worked on his yeast, trying to engineer a genome that would successfully produce a little understood cellulase. Trying and failing. He'd had no crawlers, no samples, nothing to go on but a mass spec analysis that clearly wasn't 100% accurate. He'd collected a six-figure paycheck, come up with bullshit to put on his weekly reports, and generally kicked back and lived the good life of a government employee flying under the radar. Now, however, he had something he could use, an actual cellulase, and plenty of it. On the one hand, it made him furious to see how close he'd been to getting it right. On the other, if the new line of Saccharomyces Feely succeeded, his work could make the human race immune to a disease that made the Black Plague look like post-nasal drip. Tim raised his glass toward Margaret. She frowned, but begrudgingly reached out her wine glass and clinked in a quiet toast. 
Like him, she had showered. Her black hair hung heavy and damp, but she looked fantastic. When she'd arrived, she'd been drowning in a bizarre notion of self-pity. Well, no more. Her eyes blazed with intelligence, with life, and a persistent smile hovered at the corners of her mouth. She looked good even inside a BSL-4 suit. Outside of one, she looked fantastic. Tim could see more than a few lost weekends with that one. As long as Captain Yasaka didn't find out, of course. It was always a good rule of thumb not to incur the jealousy of a woman with keys to the weapons locker. I should make popcorn, Tim said. You guys want popcorn? Neither Margaret nor Clarence responded. Their attention stayed fixed on the screen. The number at the bottom of the screen ticked up to 850. The diver will be there soon, Tim said. We'll get a look at this debacle. It's not the diver, Clarence said. This is from a camera mounted on the nose of a Blackfish 12, the Navy's high-end UUV. The fish is going down ahead of the diver to get a fresh rad reading. Tim drained his glass. He thought about asking Clarence to fetch him a refill, but he wasn't really in the mood to get his ass kicked. He started to stand. Margaret put a hand on his arm. Dr. Feely, you're not getting another drink, are you? Tim stopped halfway out of his chair. Ah, the thought had crossed my mind. She shook her head. I'd appreciate it if you didn't. We go back into the lab in a little bit. Tim sighed, sat down, and watched the screen. The blackfish's lights played against a far-off ghostly image. Finally, the submarine. His hand tightened on his empty glass. The submarine. Walker, immune. Wait a minute, he said. We think Walker was immune, right? Margaret nodded. So then, why did she sabotage the sub's engines? Why did she cripple it if she wasn't a psycho? The answer is simple, Clarence said. Maybe not for someone with a doctorate, but simple enough for a veteran. Tim turned to look at Clarence, saw the man's self-confident smirk. Do tell, Agent Otto, Tim said. Edify me with your worldly wisdom. The disease wants to spread. It always wants to spread. If the captain was one of the converted, he'd head for the nearest major port so he could spread his infected crew among a dense population. Margaret's eyebrows rose. Chicago. They were heading for Chicago. Candace stopped them. Clarence nodded. Lieutenant Walker knew her duty. She knew what she had to do to protect the country. Tim huffed. Clarence was right, obviously, which Tim found annoying. Patriotism could drive people to sacrifice themselves. That, too, was damn annoying, because it flew in the face of survival of the fittest. Stupid people could be convinced to die for the greater good. The greater good was always someone who would live on because of, and long after, that sacrifice. Soldiers die. Generals retire. On the screen, the wrongly angled sail of the Los Angeles loomed into view. Lights played off more flotsam. Tim knew a lot of that detritus was composed of sailor bits, bodies either torn apart by the torpedo strike or picked at by scavengers. The number 688 glowed a bright white. The PA system clicked on, a too loud mechanical voice that broke the moment's magic. 
Dr. Feely, line one for Captain Yasaka. Dr. Feely, line one for Captain Yasaka. Tim glanced at the wet-haired Margaret Montoya. Felt like he'd been caught at something. Did Yasaka know he was ogling his fellow scientist? He stood and strode to a phone mounted on the wall. He lifted the handset, as always marveling a little at the archaic cord that ran from it to the wall unit. He pushed the number one. This is Dr. Feely. This is the captain. Yasaka's voice. Not the voice that on some nights said, Take me. Or on extra special nights said, Please, Daddy. This was her command voice. Captain, how can I be of service? Are you with Dr. Montoya? I am. A petty officer just killed two of my crew. The captain said. He tested positive as did two other men who were bunking near him. We have a total of three positives. Tim's body went ice cold. Three positives? So far, Yasaka said. Security will deliver these men to cells in your lab. I suspect they won't be the last. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 36 Diver Down Clarence sat in the lab's control room module, looking down at Tim and Margaret, who were working away in their big helmeted suits. They'd rushed out of the extravagant theater, desperate to get back to work. Clarence had watched them both pop some pills. Apparently, now wasn't the time to let fatigue get the better of them. As for himself, he'd suited up and overseen delivery of the new prisoners, Orin Nagy, the killer, as well as Conroy Austin and Lionel Chappas, both of whom had tested positive. Cantrell now had company. The deck crane had lowered the men down to the Brashear's big side airlock, accompanied by six biosafety-suited guards. Clarence had watched everyone go through the bleach-wash decon process, watched the infected men be placed in clear cells, watched the guards re-enter the airlock for their final decon. 
The side airlock was the only safe way to bring the infected into the holding area, but it was also needed for the submersion tests on Clark's and Cantrell's suits. The first test, the pressurized fall test, hadn't detected any leaks. If the suits had holes, those holes were microscopic. Margaret didn't seem that concerned about it, but Clarence would still push Captain Yasaka to do the submersion test. With Yasaka's crew redoubling efforts to find any infected, the best Clarence could hope for was to see the test run tomorrow night, or at the very latest, the following morning. The mood had changed, to say the least. In the extravagant briefing room, he'd sensed Margaret's subdued elation. She thought they had the infection beat. Not today, of course, but so soon that a few more weeks would make no difference. Now, however, the infection had spread to the general crew. Three positives would quickly multiply. Yasaka's best efforts couldn't stop the spread, not with so many people packed on the brashear and nowhere to send them. The captain could only hope to slow the contagion, give Margaret and Tim time to come up with a solution. And if they didn't find that solution? This would end with an F-27 Eagle dropping a firebomb on the entire task force. Carl Brashear would join the Forrest Sherman, the Stratton, and the Los Angeles at the bottom of Lake Michigan. Would Clarence and Margaret still be aboard if that happened? Maybe. If Murray Longworth wasn't sure that he and Margaret were clean, he'd torch them without a second thought. Clarence couldn't do anything to help Tim and Margaret. What he could do was pay attention to the diver entering the wreck of the Los Angeles. On the counter in front of him, Clarence had diagrams of the Los Angeles' layout. He watched the diver's progress on the console's small screens. It was quite different from the deep-water dives he'd seen on the Discovery Channel. No rust, no colorful clusters of barnacles and anemones, no schools of bright fish. The L.A. had sunk only three days earlier, just a broken gray hull sitting on a lifeless lake bottom. The control room's speakers carried the chatter between the diver and the Brashear's crew. Diver 1, status. How you doing, Tom? Diver is okay, came back the answer. Goddamn cold down here. Feeling it in my joints right through the suit. Request permission to start cutting. Permission granted, Diver 1. Seconds later, the screen flared brightly. Clarence looked away. The diver's awkward, high-pressure diving suit made him look like a cross between a morbidly obese man and a heavily armored beetle. Five round, blue segments made up each arm, connected together by oscillating rings that allowed limited movement. There weren't even hands, just blue spheres tipped by black pincers. The legs were similar to the arms, all connecting to a white, hard-shelled torso, as did the bulbous helmet. A boxy red backpack housed the oxygen supply and CO2 scrubber, which would give the diver up to 48 hours of life support. An ADS rig was one of the few things that could make a spacesuit look dainty by comparison. The suit was far too bulky to fit through any of the Los Angeles' external hatches. Cutting directly into the nose cone might put the alien artifact at risk. The diver would use an underwater torch to cut through the hull of the torpedo room, then move through that wider space into the nose cone. The bright light faded from the screen. Diver 1, cut, complete, removing hull. Clarence saw a large oval piece of metal drop away from the submarine's curved hull and thump into the lake bottom, kicking up a slow-motion cloud of flotsam. Diver 1, proceed into the torpedo room. Roger that, top side, moving into the torpedo room. Clarence inched closer to the screen. 
Almost immediately, the diver's light revealed three uniformed corpses that hung motionless in the water. Rigor held arms away from bodies, as if the dead were waiting to give someone a hug. There was at least some animal life at this depth. Even though no fish were visible, the ripped flesh of hands and faces betrayed their presence. Topside, the diver said. You seeing this? His voice sounded tinny. Clarence could hear the man's breathing increase. Roger that, Diver One, the dive master said. Nobody said it was going to be pretty. You're almost there. Just get the job done. Roger, the diver said. Moving in. Clarence could imagine the diver's stress. Nine hundred feet below the surface, a depth that would kill him without the suit. He was surrounded by corpses while violence and uncertainty swept across the ship above him. The diver, Tom, he had to have giant balls of steel. Technically, Clarence was the current representative of the scientific team. If needed, he had an override button he could hit and speak directly to the diver. If any major issues popped up, Clarence could route the diver cam view to Margaret's heads-up display, let her decide what needed to be done. The dive master's voice sounded loud and clear in the speakers. Diver one, move forward through the torpedo room to the nose cone airlock. Roger that, topside. Diver two, the dive master said. Position yourself at the entrance point and maintain safety of diver one's umbilical. Diver two, confirmed, came a third voice, the voice of a woman. Of course, they were using a safety diver. Oddly, that made Clarence nervous. The Brashear only had two ADS-2000 rigs. If something went very wrong on this dive, there was no way to get another person down to the wreck without flying in additional suits. Even on a rush order, that might take a day or more. Topside Diver 2, the woman said. Feeding Diver 1's umbilical. The ADS onboard air meant the divers didn't need air tubes. What they did need, however, was a communication cable a thousand feet long. If Tom cut his on some jagged piece of wreckage, the Brashear would lose his visual and audio signals. On the screen, Clarence saw racks of long, gray torpedoes. A body sat there, ass on the deck, back against one of the racks, chin hanging to chest, as if the man was only taking a catnap. Topside, diver one, the diver said. I have reached the nose cone airlock. It's open. Clarence looked at the sub-schematics. The nose cone had a small external airlock for loading material from the outside directly into the negatively pressurized mini-lab. And it also had an internal airlock, allowing the science crew to enter the lab from the ship proper. We see it, Diver One, the dive master said. Proceed. The images on the screen blurred, the diver turning, slowly pulling in the slack on his umbilical cord. He turned again, then stepped through the airlock door into the small area beyond. The room looked tilted, of course, about a thirty-degree slant down and to the right. Every wall had racks. Most of the racks were empty. They had been meant to hold small, airtight cases, cases that now bobbed against the ceiling. The cases held various scientific equipment, microscopes, voltage meters, hardness testing kits, and a dozen other devices that might help in identifying alien material. Top side, no bodies here. Room is empty, 
the diver said. Moving toward the objective. He turned to the right, his light moving past the empty racks. Clarence saw something. He slapped at his override button. Wait, look left again. The dive master's voice came back angry and impatient. Who's on this goddamn channel? This is Agent Clarence Otto. Sorry. Listen, Tom, I mean, Diver One, can you turn to the left again? The dive master spoke again. Diver One, stand by. Agent Otto, this is dangerous work. We finish the recovery first. Diver, stay with the mission per- A no-bullshit female voice cut in. This is Captain Yasaka. Facilitate any and all requests of Agent Otto, as long as those requests do not compromise Diver's safety. Clarence waited through a short but uncomfortable pause. Aye, Captain, the dive master said. Diver one, do as Agent Otto asked. Roger that, Chief, Tom said. Diver turning left. The image on the screen slewed left again. Look down, Clarence said. The diver did. The image of a black shoe appeared. Just a shoe, Tom said. It's stuck in some kind of brown stuff. Looks like sediment has leaked in through a crack somewhere. Clarence remembered when Murray had come to his house. Remembered the picture drawn by Candace Walker. Move closer, Clarence said. Pan up a little bit. Diver moving closer, Tom said. I don't... Wait. I think there's a foot in that shoe. And the leg is buried in the... Oh, my God, are you guys seeing this? Uh, roger that, the dive master said. Stand by. Clarence leaned closer to the monitor. Wedged between a pair of equipment racks was a body. Unlike the sitting down and napping body in the torpedo room, however, this one was encased in something, something attached to the hull, the deck, even crusted up over the equipment racks. Tom's light played off of a brown, bumpy surface that covered the unknown sailor's torso and half of his face, while leaving the mouth and nose unobstructed. The right eye stared, wide and forever frozen open. A left hand stuck out from the brown mass, fingers curled in a talon of death, just a bit of blue shirt sleeve still visible. Clarence saw a second left hand. There were two people in there, at least just as in the drawing made by Candace Walker. Diver one to topside. What the hell is this? Tom's voice sounded ragged, like he was becoming overwhelmed. Ignore it, Diver one, the dive master said. Proceed to your objective. Tom, stay cool. Clarence could barely blink, barely breathe. Tom again turned right toward the room's main storage locker. It looked like a horizontal, flat-topped freezer, the kind usually kept in a basement. Only this one was military gray instead of the white. Inside, Clarence knew, was the soda can-sized object the Los Angeles crew had collected days earlier. Tom moved slowly toward it. On the locker, a tiny keypad glowed green. It had its own power supply, which was obviously still functioning. Top side to Diver 1. Great work. We're almost home. Prepare to enter access codes. The dive master read off the 16-digit code. Tom read it back. Clarence saw Tom extend his suit's pincer hand. 
The pincer ended with a stiff rubber stud, small enough to press the keypad digits. The last button drew a beep from the crate, audible over the speakers. The keypad's glow shifted from green to orange. The crate's lid slowly rose on a rear hinge, pushed up by steel pistons on either end. The diver's light shone on a small, black cylindrical container. It wasn't much bigger than a travel mug. Hidden inside of that, a piece of an alien spacecraft. Topside, Diver 1. I see the objective. Visual confirmed, Diver 1. Retrieve the objective and then exit the vessel. The hard blue spheres, inside of which were Tom's hands, reached into the crate toward the objective. The black pincers opened wide, ready to grab the black tube, then paused. Diver 1 to topside. I know I was briefed that this is safe, but, well, are you sure? Diver 1, retrieve the object, the dive master said. It's safe, Tom. Just don't pretend you're making a James Bond martini, okay? Tom actually laughed, a sound thinned by the electronics, but still full of a grateful relief. <laughs> yeah, shaken, not stirred. You got it. The diver's pincers closed on the container, rubber grips locking down on the curved black surface. He lifted it free of the storage locker. Topside, diver one. Objective acquired. Something black darted across the screen, a split-second flash that made Clarence think of snakes, worms, eels. The image on the screen shifted, blurred, the diver turning as fast as he could. What the fuck was that? Tom's voice peaked his microphone, making his words crackle with static. Diver one, calm down, the dive master said, his tone cool and collected. Of course it was. He wasn't the one in a dark tomb 900 feet below the surface, surrounded by dead bodies. Clarence's hands clenched into involuntary fists. He wanted to reach down and somehow grab Tom, drag the diver to safety. The image skewed as Tom turned, looking for the source of that unknown movement. His lights lit up the same empty shelves and slightly bobbing boxes, the same motionless dead men covered in crusty brown. Topside, Diver 1. I think I saw something moving in here. Maybe a fish. Moving to exit the... It's on my suit. God damn it, there's not supposed to be any... God... <laughs> The screen turned to white noise. Diver 1, status? No answer. Clarence closed his eyes, tried to stay calm. So close. What had happened? He heard the dive master's disembodied voice in the control room speakers. Diver 1, status? Talk to me, Tom. There was no response. Diver 2, we've lost contact with Diver 1, the dive master said, his voice still supremely composed, infuriatingly so. Proceed inside immediately to Diver 1's location. Move forward with caution. It's possible Diver 1 tripped a booby trap. Topside, Diver 2, entering the sub. The dive master continued to calmly issue orders, sending the remaining UUVs to the Los Angeles and getting rescue divers into the water. The image on Clarence's screen shifted from static to the entrance hole, 
and then the torpedo room. The view of Diver 2's camera, nearly an exact replay of what Diver 1 had seen just minutes earlier. Suddenly the image shook violently, filled with bubbles and bits of falling metal. The diver slewed right, making the view tilt. Topside large explosion in the nose cone. Wreck is unstable. Diver 2, exit immediately. Repeat, exit immediately. Clarence heard the diver scream, saw a flash of something coming down from above. The image slewed the other way, the horizontal now vertical, and the vertical horizontal as the diver fell to her side. He heard a crunching sound, painfully loud in the speakers. Diver 2, get out of there, the dive master said, his voice at last carrying a shred of urgency, a hint of emotion. Exit immediately. Topside, I'm stuck. Oh my God, my visor is cracked. Water is coming in. Get me help. Get someone down here. Another crunch far louder than the first. Then, no sound at all. The sideways view didn't waver. The diver had been crushed, but her helmet camera remained on, continued to send signals up the umbilical to the brashear far above. Clarence sagged back in his chair. He felt cold, distant, as if it were all happening somewhere else. Two divers dead, both ADSs destroyed. And worst of all, the artifact was still down there. Chapter 37 Day 4 Foreign Powers Murray hated the Situation Room, but at least that felt comfortable, felt familiar. The President's private sitting room didn't feel familiar at all. He'd been here twice before, both times to deliver bad news to former Presidents, the kind of news that couldn't wait until morning. The room could have been in any house, really, any house of someone with money and status. Murray and Admiral Porter sat on a comfortable couch. Murray knew he looked wrinkled, disheveled. He'd been napping on a cot when the news had come in. His staff had brought him fresh clothes, but he'd done little more than throw them on. Porter, of course, looked neat and pressed, not a wrinkle on his uniform. The sitting room was right next to the president's bedroom. Blackman seemed sleepy, which was no surprise. She'd been woken up only fifteen minutes earlier. An explosion, she said. What was the cause, Admiral? Unknown at this time, Porter said. Possibly sabotage, a booby trap left by the infected crew of the Los Angeles. Blackman's tired eyes turned to Murray. Is that what you think? It's a possibility, Madam President, Murray said. Once the L.A.'s engines blew, the infected crew could assume that sooner or later divers would come down to retrieve the artifact. Booby traps fit the mentality of the infected to some degree. Although the infected would be most interested in spreading the disease, the explosion was definitely internal, however, which does make crew sabotage the most likely cause. He stood, slowly, his aching hips and a stabbing pain in his back keeping him from doing it otherwise, and handed the president a photo taken by one of the Blackfish UUVs. The front end of the Los Angeles had blown open like some cartoon cigar. Blackman studied it. Admiral, would that destroy the artifact? Possibly, Porter said. The last report from the diver said he had removed it from the main hardened storage locker. If that is accurate, it's doubtful the smaller container holding the artifact itself could have withstood such an explosion. 
Blackman set the picture in her lap. When will we know for sure? Another ADS is en route, Porter said. It will be at least 12 hours before we can get a person down there. The UUVs have scanned the area but found no sign of the container. Considering the damage, that's not surprising. She looked at the photo again. Could it have been survivors? The Los Angeles also had one of those deep-sea suits, did it not? That or someone in an air pocket. Or could the disease modify human biology enough for people to survive down there? Porter shook his head. Not likely. At that depth, the pressure is 28 times that of sea level. Nitrogen narcosis would quickly kill anyone not locked into a sealed area or wearing an ADS. Those suits have at most 48 hours of life support, and the Los Angeles sank four days ago. Any normal human being in that crew is definitely dead. Porter looked at Murray to answer the final part of the question. The disease can change physiology, but not to that extent, Murray said. Pressure is still pressure, Madam President. She nodded. All right. Now for the obvious question. Could this have been a deliberate attack by foreign agents, allowing them to seize the artifact? Murray had known that question was coming. Truth be told, he wanted to hear the answer himself. Porter thought carefully before responding. It's absolutely a possibility, although less likely than the booby trap. Recon flights are out around the clock. Coast Guard ships have been called in to patrol the five-mile perimeter around the task force. It is highly doubtful any sub could swim undetected beneath that perimeter, and nothing on the surface could get past it unseen. The Pinckney reported no sonar sightings, Nothing was detected by the UUVs and ROVs, and neither of the deceased divers reported anything unusual until they entered the nose cone. Murray wasn't a naval expert, but Porter seemed confident in the measures taken. Blackman eased back in her chair. So, sabotage, she said. That's the most likely answer. But if something did get through our lines... She didn't finish the thought. She didn't need to. Every agency is on alert, Porter said. Homeland, TSA, everyone. Not that this changes anything. They've been on alert since the Los Angeles went down. Murray had his doubts. Anyone talented enough, resourceful enough to snatch an artifact from 900 feet down, right out from under the nose of the U.S. Navy, would have no problem getting past airport security or just putting the thing on a truck and sending it to Mexico. At any point, on any path of transport, infection could occur. Well, Blackman said, for once I find myself rooting for sabotage. Murray couldn't agree more. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues— 
And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.